0: a special message from this month's presenting sponsor. Learn about Baltimore's rich industrial legacy through working galleries that explore the history of the Bethlehem steel mill, an antique print shop, a garment loft, and more at the Baltimore Museum of Industry. The BMI, hours and information at thebmi.org. Also, use the code TRUTH50, that is TRUTH50, my special code, and get 50% off of admission at the front desk or use it when purchasing the tickets online. So please visit thebmi.org and make that trip today. Welcome to The Truth In It's Art. I am your host, Rob Lee. THD? No, not really. Uh, Today, I have the privilege of chatting with a scholar, curator, writer of the 20th and 21st century visual art, new media, and performance of the the Black Diaspora. Please welcome Dr. Tiffany E. Barber. Got the E in there. Welcome to the podcast. Right.
1: I gotta gotta rep the E. It's a... um it is a family name that has been in my family for generations. It was a first name and then it became a middle name. So it's a middle name that I share with the last three generations of women in my family. And then there, it, it, the, the farther back you go, it turns into a first name. So,
0: yes, that it's, it's really funny when you were able to dip back and look at the, I guess, what's the word, etymology of your your name or have you. And I learned that my actual surname had an, uh, a, an extra letter attached to it uh <laughs> so that was a that was a whole thing um and uh i found that out like cause you know black folk you you have like how far do you want to go down this tree it's like huh, i don't i don't know i feel like that's a white person that did some, something crappy in here i don't want to go too far right. but doing some digging my dad was like you know our last name was really atkins right i was like so my name was robert atkins like the atkins diet guy I was like, you know, he died. I'm doing this whole thing, just this whole rabbit hole yeah. thing, and I was just like, no, nah, Watkins, it's
1: fine.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to stick with that. Um, and, uh, and and I also learned that when you do a Google search, I have Google searched myself. It's a oh. lot of CEOs with that name, so uh,
1: oh.
0: eh, noted. Um, right. But right. enough of my him and Han and and chit chatting on the uh, the names. I want to get into. Um, one of the reasons why we're here, I wanted to talk about you. I'm talking about myself. Let's talk about you. Um, if you will, could you give us those, those vital stats, that the background, and um, really describe to us, um, to the listeners, who aren't dipped? Describe your work.
1: Absolutely. Um, so, as you mentioned in the intro, I am a scholar, curator, and writer. My work focuses on artists of the Black diaspora um I have a I have a dance background I was a dancer for many years of my life um from a young age until my young adult years I guess my early 20s um and I still dance I still take class and I still very much I'm very much in conversation with dancers and choreographers um some of my best friends are still in the dance world and so um from dance I I came to curatorial practice. I thought I was going to be a director of a site-specific dance comp- uh, dance festival or something and thinking about dance and publics and publicness and um, performance. And so I ended up um, moving to LA. So I went to school, I went to college in, in New York at the Ailey School. So it was a very classical ballet, modern, all forms of dance, but mo- mainly classical ballet and modern. Um, and I mean, by classical modern, I mean, Lester Horton technique and Martha Graham technique and, um, some other major players in the, in the concert dance world, the modern dance world. And so left that behind and moved to LA, sight unseen. I had never been to the West Coast before. And I was like, this seems like a great adventure. (laughs) And, um, that was 15 years ago, 16 years ago. And at that time, the contemporary art scene was really starting. There was- starting to starting to tip a little bit um there hadn't really been a robust contemporary art scene in la before that um there were pockets of it and there's certainly histories that have been excavated by folks like dr kelly jones and especially in the black art space yeah um but i was really informed by that experience of, of living in la and liaising with artists and curators and gallerists and Um, I worked in the public art world and doing administration and I was doing my own curatorial practice or own curatorial projects independently and so got really into that and thought oh you know maybe I want to do this institutionally I don't know but let's go get a PhD and so then I moved back to the east coast um, to western New York Rochester Yeah. did my PhD and kind of tried to figure out how to bring all these things together dance curatorial practice art history um, and a focus on black artists. Um, and yeah, so that's really, that was really the journey.
0: Thank you for, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, it's, you know, coast being coastal, uh, and really kind of, um, diving in really like starting off from being in a spot where you're like, dance is the thing to, yeah, I'm a scholar. This is what I'm doing. So I dig it, and um, it's it's really interesting how we can make a shift from one sort of like artistic expression to something that feels a lot different, but still be able to dip back into that original like place we were at. So, like I'm doing this podcast thing, and I feel like there's some curation that happens there because it's it's an intentionality with who I'm talking to, right? And absolutely. And uh, and even when I put the episodes out, like how you configure them and all of that stuff. But um, I had one idea once upon a time that I was going to be a uh, cartoonist or a comic book artist. Oh. So that's very different, right? And Because um, podcasts didn't exist in like the early 90s. And i right. uh, sure like talk radio did. But uh, in recent years, being able to do this, it inspired me to kind of dip back into the comic world. And I now write a comic versus drawing it and doing all of the other stuff.
1: Oh, very cool. Yeah. yeah, I've been able to, I still write on dance. I, like I said, I still take class. I actually, before the pandemic, um, was part of a West African performance ensemble nice. in Philadelphia, where I lived. And um, it's been really wonderful to stay connected to dance. I mean, it's been such a big part of my life. And so, um, and in, in terms of our history and museum practice, um, the, you know um, museums and exhibitions have really started to embrace dance you know there's this whole phenomenon of dance in the museum and so thinking about embodied practice performance um, and these histories that are um, born out from visual art practice but also that in, in a lot of ways predate and so it's an interesting kind of um, back and forth an interesting kind of exchange and so I've actually been talking to some dance artists here in LA where I'm currently based. Um, I forgot to mention that I'm a research fellow at the Getty Research Institute um, in Los Angeles right now until the end of June and so so yeah so the, that's another, t- another thing about LA is that the scene, the performance scene is starting to grow too and like a more focus on, on dance and um, which wasn't here again 15, 16 years ago when I first lived here so it's really interesting to be back um, in a place where it was so formative for me in terms of my professional and scholarly identities and then being back and bringing this kind of experience of dance to um, my practice now.
0: It's like, oh, you guys finally caught up. Finally. Yeah. Now I'll be back. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> like, I'm glad that you figured it out without me having to like, you know, wrangle you.
0: That's that's one of the things that I, I hear when it comes to, to this thing. Like, I don't know if, like, I'm based in Baltimore, right? so East Coast, you enjoy enjoy your West Coast sun or whatever. I know, uh, right? <laughs> but I, I would hear from, from different people because I'm starting to branch out and, and, and work with different markets. I've uh, got a tour I'm setting up in Austin, and um pl- probably going to make a West Coast tour. I'm not quite sure where yet, but doing a little bit of a West Coast tour and kind of get dipped in to see if... Maybe I can branch out and do another like sub-series of interviews. And, you know, I, I hear from different people like, wow, you're, you're good at this. And I was like, thank you. It feels almost a little backhanded, right? But people would say like, so how is it going where you're at versus like, if you were to come here and do this, like you would have a radio show, you'd be doing this. And I guess I'm waiting for it to catch up here. I, I, I think that's what's happening a little bit of, you know, podcasts aren't new, Right. You know, this, this kind of uh, chronicling, this kind of documenting what's going on in the scene isn't a new idea, but I, I think it being regarded as an art, being regarded in that way. And even going back to what you mentioned earlier about like, like dance, right? Um, I had a conversation. Um, I was on, actually, it was on this board conversation with uh, a group of different artists that are in Baltimore. And there was this is one, um, one, one, one lady that uh, runs like a dance company. And she was like, oh, so you guys finally going to acknowledge us? You know, this is from, like, some arts council situation for funding. Oh, yeah. And it was just really funny to hear, like, that vantage point because I'm like, no, dance is definitely in the conversation. But right. Then, uh, and I remember I was uh, talking about interviewing just different artists. And some people don't consider culinary arts part of the, the, the larger arts conversation. Right. And I'm like, how does that work? How are you just, like, forgetting the whole group and it has all of those different layers?
1: Right, right, all those elements. And food is so visual. Presentation, mm-hmm. and then multisensorial, obviously. So, yeah, it's interesting, mm. the, the kind of silos. And I find, you know, I encountered this in art history, and it's, um, even in the museum world, too, it's like, you know, this preconceived notion of what, like, you know, what exhibition is supposed to be, like, exhibition display, and, you know, how we're supposed to... Think about art and our encounters with it, and um, I just don't have that experience because I came through it. I came to art history through completely different channels, mm-hmm. um, through through making, right? Through making dances, through making exhibitions, and so I'm really interested in in that and making as a space of learning, making as a space of knowledge production. Um, and so I do this with my students as well. I'm um, assistant professor of Africana studies and art history at the University of Delaware. Also forgot to mention that in my bio. In my, in my vital stats, it's just like, I just, but to this point, I wear so many hats and so so many people, so many people are constantly like, well, how do you manage it all? Or how do you, how do you like talk about all the things that you do? And like, you know, is, are you branding a methodology or whatever? And I'm like, no, I'm just being me. I don't have a, I don't have a frame of, I don't have a language for it, a vocabulary for it other than what it is. Like I can explain it to you um, and I can model it for you. And it's, it's definitely reproducible. I don't have to call it something for it to be a thing. Um, but it's, this, it's an interesting, these kinds of silos and these, like I these kinds of preconceived notions about what art is and what it can't be or what it isn't or what it shouldn't be. And, um, so yeah, so I, I, I understand. I also think that, um, these smaller markets, Baltimore, I grew up in Oklahoma city, Philadelphia, even, even though it's closer to New York than Baltimore is, um, even Richmond, Virginia, where I've also have, um, a curatorial project that's going to open later this year and Ooh, okay. Charlottesville where I spent a little bit of time and. So these kind of smaller cities, St. Louis, I also spent time there doing some curatorial work um, a few years ago. And so these kind of smaller cities, these smaller markets are slow on the uptick, but they're also a lot. That also means that there's a lot of room for growth. It's just you mm-hmm. might have just at a certain point, which is what sounds like what's happening to you. You're like, OK, I have done you know, I created this space. Yeah. It's a vibrant space. And now I want to grow. And the city doesn't isn't doesn't have the capacity to help you get to do that. So you're kind of outgrowing. And so you have to move around and then yeah, hopefully Baltimore will will expand and, and be able to um, to support you when you you're ready to return or like, you know, when you want to continue to have your home base there. But I think there is something to these smaller cities, like being able to be nimble outside of these mm-hmm. um, larger cities and larger institutions. Um, this is something I've been thinking about in terms of like the value of. Of. um of being a non-traditionally trained art historian is like I operate outside of the mainstream and I'm drawn to projects and artists that are also doing that same thing it's like oh you know I didn't go to art school or um, I did but I did this completely different thing with painting that I was taught you know or something like that these kind of innovations I think that these smaller cities are right for that too.
0: And yes, and I I think one of the things that happens there in Baltimore, like, you know, Baltimore is going to be home-based, and I think that I have that – I have this desire that – I well, I have this idea that I work with that I think sums up a lot of things and it simplifies a lot of things for me. People just want to win, you know, and I want to be right in this assessment that I'm going to make it big here, but there is this side of – I'm going to come back with tiny glasses, big scarf, act like I don't know anybody. It's going to be great. <laughs> so there's that side of it. But I think one of the the benefits, if you play it right, in know, in a smaller market, smaller city or what have you, things are accessible and you can kind of grow it. But it's like, all right, you, maybe and I think what my aim is bringing Baltimore to those other markets and bringing those other markets here. I'm I'm trying to be a magnet in that way, I think is Mm. kind of that, that angle there and, um, see what happens. Um, so with that, I want to move into this, this next question, because you, you said some things in there, you, you now have my spider senses going off, uh, which is great. Um, so tell me about some of your creative influences or just like, what really pops? Because you are doing everything. You said you wear many hats, but you have the big hair, so I don't know if the hat is going <laughs> to the fit. They don't uh,
1: fit. They don't fit. You're
0: right. <laughs> I'm bold, so I can just wear every hat and I can just do my thing. But in wearing in wearing many hats, um, let's say from a curatorial standpoint, right? What what really pops for you as far as like an artist you want to work with, like really what sticks out, like, you know, that non-traditional thing, that's I'm feeling what you're putting down there. Um, but what really sticks out is like, Oh wow. You use that. You made that out of an old door. Like, what are you, what are you doing? You know, what's that for you?
1: Right. So I do a lot of studio visits and I have a lot of conversations with artists and I'm always like, I really value hearing how artists think What I um, am most drawn to is when artists are in their studios solving problems and you can see that in the work. Like you're like, Oh, I see you moving through these issues and kind of tackling them in these ways, whether that's materially or conceptually, aesthetically, formally, whatever. But I'm just, I'm always interested in, I'm always drawn to the artists that are really um, thinking on their feet and -hmm. thinking with, the objects that they're making, instead of just being driven by market demands or like, oh, I have to sell work, or you know, black is black is in black is in vogue. So like, let me just you know run this formula. I'm really not interested in those kinds of in this in those in that kind of work. It's boring to me. I'm like, this is very shallow and narrow. And um, I know there are a lot of people in the curatorial space and in the art in the art world and that are about that. And you know, that's a different take. That's a very kind of like you know, I want us all to win and I want us to get our coins too, but I'm also interested. Is it good? Is the work good? (laughs) Like, does it have legs? Is it, is there something here that's that's rich and textured and nuanced that can grow and develop and kind of spur into these other ways, spur into these other realms and worlds. That's the stuff that I'm most like excited about. I'm like, Ooh, so I I know when I'm, when I'm interested and I know that it's, it's also kind of a, an intuition thing. Like yeah. if I'm in the studio with an artist and I'm having a conversation with them and they they might say something like, Oh, this is a key word that I've been thinking about for myself. And I'm like, Oh, that's interesting. Well, have you thought about it in this way? Because what I'm seeing in the work is this. And then that unlocks something for them. And I was yeah. like, Oh my gosh. So I love that exchange and that back and forth and being able to think with, honestly to think with artists rather than just calling people up and being like, so what, what, what work you got for me? I'm, I'm making a show. (laughs) You're a name that I, you know, I want to have in my camp. So like, what are you, what can you send me? And it happens all the time. And it's just so, it's so frustrating because I really think that there is a quote unquote art like you were talking about in terms of how you put together interviews and who you who you decide to talk to, who you want to reach out to and cultivate as a, as a collaborator in this series in this podcast series. It is that. It's like it, there is an art to that. Like you're paying attention. You're being intentional about who you're, um, who you want to be in conversation with. And I think that that kind of care, literally the root of, of curate, yeah. um, is is really important. And it's getting lost because of social media, influencer culture, and all of this stuff. And you know, if you have this many followers, then you must know what you're talking about. Or if not, you are at least a platform, and so that'll that'll get people in the door. And yeah. and oftentimes, I go to shows where that are curated by influencers, and I'm like, oh man, this work is bad, or like this vision is terrible, and it's like, oh, this is a poor poorly executed. So I think. You know there's a technique. I mean going back to my yeah. dancing, I'm like, there's technique and I care about that.
0: <laughs> no, that's 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 huge. And I, I think, yes, um, there is some care that's attached to it. There is um you you want to make sure that you're having a a meaningful and good intellectually satisfying because I I I joke with people that this podcast is as much jewels and gems for me as it is for the listeners. And on occasion, I've learned about myself on having that conversation with someone. Right. It's like, well, I feel like this is what you're doing. Damn, I didn't know that. That's what I'm
1: doing? Work, Right,
0: right. And, and or being able to share that, that observation I may have for, for their work or what I'm seeing. And I I've joked with people because I think being in this spot of being kind of this outsider kind of fringe person mm-hmm. and there are certain things that I reject. Uh, like I kind of started rejecting the notion of podcaster because it's, it's become a little deprecated because mm. everyone with a microphone suddenly is a podcaster and most of them are good. Ah. Uh, and I, I take professional...
1: curator, everybody wants to be an Afrofuturist, everybody wants to be a podcaster, everybody wants to be an influencer. And I'm just like, oh, my God, we can't all...
0: We're, we're going to be friends yeah, because I've, I've said yeah. that these, these are rants that I get into. And I've, you know, talking with folks about like grants and funding and so on, I was like, you'll see where you fit when it comes to certain things you've applied for. And, you know, I joke with people. I was like, don't people of color yourself out of black dollars. Let's just keep it funny. Right. And not to be like exclusionary or anything, but also... This is the language that the people are handing out the money are using. And how do you describe yourself? Is it earnest? If you're using that terminology or these different words, fine, but make sure that's, that's true for you. Not just, this is a buzzword. This is a keyword search. Don't SEO yourself.
1: Exactly. Exactly. No, it's so necessary.
0: This rant was brought to you by <laughs> <I know>. <laughs> Juice. <laughs> yeah,
1: I am often. Yeah, I'm. I am. I really understand where you're coming from.
0: <laughs> so, y- you've been asked to do many lectures, podcasts, like like this one. This this great podcast. This is not like anybody else's podcast, <laughs> uh, and, and so on. So, tell me ab- about and and don't get caught on the word here, but tell me about the experience of having influence or being asked for your opinion the the good and the bad of it.
1: Yeah, so I think that I'll start with the bad first because that's, yeah. Um, There is a way in which it's really great to have people pay attention to your work and like, you know, be in a place where folks are paying attention and valuing and being like, oh, wow, I hadn't thought of that or that's a brand new perspective that actually unlocks this for me or helps me expand my own thinking and gives me new food for thought that I'm gonna, you know, that I wanna, I wanna chew on. And so the, and you know, the only way to have a paradigm shift is for that to happen is for people to be paying attention. Yeah. Um, so, but the, I think the, the bad part for me is that so often, and I think this is true of a lot of my uh, peers of African descent, we, we can get misquoted. This is really the problem. Is that the bad part is like, oh, like your work is taken out of context. Or like, you know, that's a sound bite that somebody completely, you know, there's no the before after, you know, it's taking, like I said, kind of taken out of context and or misinterpreted, and you're just like, oh, I didn't say that. Like that's not that's not what I said. Um, and so I think in terms of my scholarship and in terms of my curatorial practice, I'm always thinking about how can this be the most synthetic, crystallized like kind of layered version of itself mm-hmm. um, such that people can enter it in these multiple ways, but that it, the meaning doesn't get lost, but there's also room for new meaning making. Um, so it's a really complicated kind of dance, <laughs> complicated dance, a complicated choreography. Um, and so I think, but the good thing, I think the good things are about the good things about being in this place in my career is that I have worked so hard for so long. You know, and being on the being in the trenches and really agitating and trying to just give platforms to artists that are often overlooked, yeah. that um, are withheld from or excluded from certain spaces, and just giving them platforms to kind of shine. And then it's great. The greatest part of it is when you see those folks take off, and you're like, "Oh my gosh!" And they and they're able to maintain their integrity. That is so key. Um, yeah. And so that's that's really my challenge to myself also, is to maintain my own integrity in the space of, you know, growing influence and visibility. Last year during the pandemic, I was like, oh man, I'm at home. What am I going to do with all this extra time? Which was a lie, was a myth. I lied to myself saying that I had extra time. I actually did not. I have still not figured out how to bend time, although I would like to, but it was not, last year was not it. But I did focus on like growing my visibility and influence and what that would feel like and look like. And so, you know, I was really really big on the, on the social media and growing my followers and letting people know what I was doing and having, you know, these IG live conversations with all these multidisciplinary folks who are in the fashion world, sustainable fashion, the cotton, the role of cotton in the art world and in fashion. And like, you know, these really interesting dynamic women and also interesting and dynamic topics. And I was so tired (laughs) by the end of the year, I was like, this ain't for me. I don't need to. Yeah. And so I've kind of taken a step back and really let the put my foot off the gas on that part. And the wild thing that that is really interesting now is that the influence is still being like my quote unquote visibility and influence is still being rewarded in all these really interesting ways. Like I'm um, being recognized by institutions that would have never looked twice at me 10 years ago when I've applied to them before for research fellowships and stuff. And now I'm winning like writing prizes from them, like, and stuff like that, where I'm just like, okay. So really just like staying focused, doing the work, maintaining your own integrity and doing it because you really feel like you have a voice that needs to be shared or a perspective that needs to be shared. And something I tell my, tell my friends and artists all the time is we don't need these these mainstream or non-black institutions to validate us, you know. Um I told my mom I talked to my mom about this too. It's like, you know, you don't need a funding agency to call you an artist. Right. They're already doing that work. And so it's their loss for them not recognizing you and you just keep it pushing, keep doing you, maintain your integrity and the the rewards will come.
0: Yeah. I, I'm I I see that that happening now. It's been um You know, sometimes it has those ups and downs. And, uh, and I, and I definitely, and and again, this is just what I think the, uh, this notion of misquoting someone or trying to, I gotcha. It's, it's an attempt to kind of discredit or or put a person in a spot and
1: And and undermine, undermine the, mm -hmm. the person's authority. And it's just like, why?
0: like i I'll go back and look at I think not too long after this this podcast started, um this podcast started in two thousand and nineteen. And it was a response to to Trump and the goofiness of talking about Baltimore in a very. you know, I was like Baltimore's a placeholder for whatever quote unquote, bad black city you want to throw shots at. That's well
1: Philly Philly got Ralph groped into that too I think yeah. nothing good happens in Philly or whatever he was saying.
0: So, you know, you you have that. And I remember almost two. this, like almost two years ago, uh, the the fallout after the murder of like George Floyd, there was, uh, you know, people having what their experiences were being, you know, a black person. I'm a six foot four, 300 pound black man. So, My experience is my experience. And I was like, yo, just sharing what it was. I had so many people in my DMs. No, that's not what happened. I think what you mean is, I can't believe you're so radical. I was like, what? Yeah. And it was just a a thing. So I've been almost emboldened. I was almost emboldened like, oh. Oh, you oh you think this is who I am? I'm trying to be nice and reserved. Right, and, right,
1: right, right. This ain't even scratching the surface, boo. What are <laughs> you talking about?
0: It's like, like I can be a dick about this.
1: Right, like you can really go there if that's what you want.
0: And and you know, and I would actually called it out because a lot of these things happen at a Catholic institution.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: you know, all of these people who are in these roles that we're all unified and so on, I was like, they were making it very challenging for me. And that was just mm-hmm. the experience. I didn't call anybody out on it, but really just saying this is what it was. And folks trying to change what that experience is, trying to collectively make an attempt to change what you're saying, not even misquoting you. Like, no, I feel like this is what it is. Oh, my mouth did this, right? Right. <laughs> um, so I, I think that that's a thing. And um, yeah, even even in doing this, integrity is an, an important thing. And anybody that I work with in having folks on. Um, I've had people reach out. I was like, wow, I can't believe you had that person on there, you know, doing graffiti and they're not necessarily, it's like, look, I try to be neutral. You know, I try to have a conversation with anyone and I pride myself on that versatility. Right. And it's just interesting when I get the most feedback
1: Mm -hmm. of,
0: I, I had like a week when I had people on who are in this developer's realm and I'm very cautious in going into it. I was like, eh, these gentrifiers, what are you guys doing? Right. And then you, you ask questions that are in that space of like, really tell me, what do what are you do? What's your real intent? And right. not being quote unquote, an artist that I lose that, you know, kind of like street cred or what have you. I'm a concerned citizen. I'm right. a person that's of the community and of the city and concerned from this standpoint, if you're having the developer on and they're doing something that's changing a, a landmark that's affiliated with your culture here, I'd rather have the conversation than not to get an idea, like, really, what are you doing? What is this going to look like in five years? And really being able to document that versus, man, we got a lot of great buildings here now. I can't believe they tore that down. Right, 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 right. So I'd rather have the conversation than just, well, moving on. What next rapper am I talking to? You know?
1: Yeah, no, and it becomes a kind of oral history project, too. I mean, I think it's so important in these Ugh, I mean, the real estate space right now is just so insane. And there's so much money. Developers have, that's where the money is concentrated. Yeah. Um, And they're buying up not just corporate buildings. They're buying up whole blocks. They're buying up row houses and just sitting on it. And the speculative real estate, actually, I took a, a trip to, a research trip to Detroit in 2018. It was my first time to the city. And I had heard about the, the speculative real estate market there. And I was like, oh, okay, I don't even really know what that means. I mean, I think I do, but I don't know. Let me yeah. see. And that we took a tour, it was some other researchers and I, and I was like, I was just shocked. Like that developers, firms were just buying up Mm -hmm. lots of land, Mm
0: -hmm. sitting
1: on them for decades until they had either lobbied enough for the local government to turn in a way that benefited them, or the market swung up or something. And I was just like, wow, imagine, imagine having that much money that you could just let it sit there.
0: That's happening. That was happening here. And it came up in a conversation. One of our larger institutions with a really interesting reputation, but eh, probably the most famous one you can think of. And um, it's just like, oh, yeah, we kind of just let this, you know, block of houses just become blighted for the better part of 20 years. Oh, real estate market is up. Let's turn it up and build something. Exactly. It's like, all right, guys. And hearing that, you know, average rent, I think I saw this the other day. It was like supposed to be like two grand. It's like hold on like, in
1: Baltimore.
0: No, no, as far as like U.S. average.
1: Oh yes, I was like, oh my god.
0: Okay, it's insane. Um, yeah. but, but I, I think I'm gonna go into this next question because look, we can have we can have a whole different series of. We
1: could. Uh, we you're could. gonna be
0: back on this network. I'm telling you. Uh, <laughs> so obviously, you have many areas of expertise. Some we just talked about right there, but something that come to mind is um, examining representations of blackness and womanhood. Is, is there a a life experience? I think that answer is pretty obvious that uh, (laughs) has shaped your creative sensibility and could you share it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I'm obviously a black woman, but I also, I know shocking. (laughs) um, I credit my mother really for as like a really um, as part of my It's I wouldn't say inspiration, but I mean, but definitely a a starting point for that. So she's I mentioned she's a fine artist and self-taught mostly, but she's also taken some classes here and there. But she um, when she was in her 20s and really wanted to pursue an art career. In Oklahoma City, where I was born and raised, um, a white professor told her that there was no market for her work um, and that she'd never make it as a black artist in Oklahoma or anywhere because there was no market people didn't want to see these images or you know she was going to have a really hard time carving out a space for herself and so she actually internalized that and then ended up going into a completely different um career path and doing um work in human resources and um benefits and payroll administration and um recently came back to making her artwork full-time once my brother and I were no longer living in the house she turned the the extra bedroom into a studio. And I was like, okay, go ahead, mom. See you. <laughs> I was like, flex on them, go ahead. <laughs> so she is really, I mean, her, her drawings and paintings of black female figures were my first encounters with art. I didn't, I, and I made art with her and um growing up. And I always thought of it as, you know, arts and crafts, you know, whatever. But my mother still teaches um art workshops, youth art workshops, community art workshops, she just opened her first solo show of paintings ever. Nice. She's 67 years old. And I'm like, yes, mom, I'm like you better show them. <laughs> so that's just going back to the comment that I made about, um, you know, she not meeting these institutions to tell her that she's an artist. I'm like, so she, for instance, she was, um, she had applied for this grant and she was really bummed that she didn't get it. And so she was like, you know, maybe it's too late for me. Maybe I should give up on my dream. And I was like, if you want to have a solo show, we can make you a solo show. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't need this grant to do that. I was like, we have friends in the community that have spaces that would be totally supportive of you, especially for your first time. I'm like, this is great. Think about it as, as a kind of laboratory moment. You can experiment, you can kind of push yourself. This is the first time you would have the opportunity to really conceive of an entire body of work and like what the different parts would be, what's, you know. And so she she went for it. She went for it, and so she um, worked on that for about eight months. Yeah, and it was she's had a resounding success and like great feedback, and folks are really digging it. And so she's really like she's really the the, the life experience that is is responsible for me getting to this stage. I mean, she put me in dance classes early on, and then um, just her love for for art and history those things together, art history, and really kind of giving me this supplemental education at growing up about Black art history, Black image making, modeling it for me in the home. And um, I'm I'm fortunate that I went to a performing arts magnet school, performing, visual and performing arts magnet school with an international baccalaureate program when I was in middle school and high school, also because of my mother's (laughs) um, um, force. And I mean, but a, I mean, it was something I wanted to do, but it was her kind of mo- her being motivated to be like, oh, no, you know, I want to set you up for success. And I might not have all the resources, but like, let me find the things that are 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 useful for you if this is the vision that you have for yourself. And so I really have to credit her in all of these ways to opening up this world for me. And even though she's never moved out of Oklahoma, Oklahoma City, she's lived there most of her life. Um, she's been, you know appreciative and supportive of me kind of flitting all about and moving <laughs> posts back and forth all over the place. And um, she's, yeah, it's just, a, it's a, it's wonderful to be able to share this part of my life with her and really kind of reflect on how she's informed uh, my development as an art historian to this point. And it's um, at this point in my career. And it's really because of this, like I said, this making as a as a form of learning and knowledge production and just solving problems in this, in her studio and just watching her. And that really is like, the life experience that informs not only, um, my practice as a scholar and curator, but also my, um, my interests and in research on blackness and womanhood. And I, um, you know, she and I are obviously different generations. I'm in my thirties, she's in her sixties. And so her ideas about blackness in the home growing up were like, you know, black power, baby, she graduated high school in 72. So it's like fist in the air, <laughs> big pro images all over the place. Like, Black Panther Party, Black Arts Movement, like very much steeped in that rhetoric, yeah. which I totally appreciated. And it like, you know, it really informed my my younger years. And then when I moved to New York, I was like, oh, wow, this is, you know, and being in the dance space and thinking about blackness and embodiment in that way. I was like, oh, this is really different than how my mother thinks about dance or thinks about blackness and um, even thinks about womanhood, like kind of more, you um, just an older generational kind of understanding, you know, post second white feminists and her being really steeped in kind of womanism and us just having really different experiences because of the times that we're living in. And, um, and us ha- being able to have conversations about those differences is really yeah. key to, to my research process.
0: Uh, so my, my dad's the same age as your mom. So that, there's a thing there. And, uh, I, like there, every now and again, I'll have a conversation with him. He's like, "Yeah, Jim, you'd be looking at things in a different perspective." And I was like, "Nah, I'm just, I just ask a lot of questions. I want, right. I want to know the the, 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 why, not the how, as much, and I'm, I try to get to the root or the truth." And
1: yes. <laughs> whatever I'm doing, and
0: and I think with that, there's this uh, kind of quiet respect. Like my dad is like Marine or what have you, and all of that different stuff. So he's like, huh, he didn't join, he didn't serve. So what do you know? But now it's like, oh, you know a lot. So I'm gonna come to you for advice and you know things of that nature. And um, but still, there are certain elements that both both my parents, but my my dad especially, uh, it's always this kind of next levelness to whatever he describes that I do. It's like when I had a job at like Verizon back in the day, he met someone. He's like, "Yeah, my son, he runs Verizon." It's like, God, <laughs> I think Lord what? Telephone runs Verizon. What are you saying? Or uh even now, um, you know, he'll tell people about the podcast and it's like anyone that does anything creative and it was one that was like so creepy, but <laughs> he was just like, yeah, you know, my my son has the best podcast in Baltimore and you know, you just gotta check it out. He's doing great things. Eh, he might he's okay. not embellishing, but uh right.
1: okay, number one supporter, yes, really? champion, okay.
0: Yeah. And but one one of the things he did, I don't know if you've heard of um those, it's like these dolls, these like babies, these lifelike babies. Oh
1: yeah.
0: And he um cause he he worked at like a Walmart or what have you, and he encountered a person that makes those. Oh. And he was like, would you want to interview them? I was like, no, absolutely not. I'm terrified. <laughs> it's, just, it's just, he's like, here's a gift. And it's like right. a baby you're version like, of me. He's like, nah, I'm all set. Yeah.
1: You're like, let's let's, let's not and say we did. Let's not. <laughs> I appreciate you. I yeah, appreciate
0: appreciate you. I appreciate what you're doing.
1: I think I can source my own interviewees. It's cool, Dad. Thanks so much.
0: <laughs> <Appreciate it>. Just <laughs> hand on the card, but don't hand him my name. <laughs>
1: right, right, right.
0: Um. So and I think I have an answer here, or at least circling towards it because of the way this conversation has gone, which I think is going well. Uh, how do you feel your perspective is represented in pop culture and art these days? Um, and in, within the last few years, do you feel like there's been a shift to be more relevant to maybe your um, perspective?
1: Yeah, I, d- I think that um, this is a great question. It's something that I deal with in the introduction to my Book, which is why I'm at the Getty Research Institute. I'm finishing um, a four chapter study on Black women's art and activism after the turn of the twenty first century. When we have been um, kind of crafting these narratives as a nation that we are our most progressive. I mean, it's the twenty first century. Look, we're beyond racism. We're beyond gender. Like these, we're beyond normative modes of of expression and in um, the kind of liberal imaginary, right? I mean, obviously, sure. it's not true of the right, but um the kind of sphere of the left and the leftist imaginary that um we are beyond certain things and no account of the structural issues that, re- that produce and reproduce those things, right? And so um within the art world, you know, there's a way in which black images have been consumed at a rapid rate in the last five to 10 years. Um, at the same time that Black Lives Matter has also been developing, right? And so I think that's an interesting phenomenon that these things are parallel to one another. And so it's like, you know, the white establishment or white institutions, white, predominantly white institutions, white led institutions looked or, you know, display Black artists and they're like, look, we're doing our job. We're like, this Mm. is diversity. Look, we have Black artists on our walls and like, look at them, the way that they're imaging themselves, like themselves, like, oh, aren't, like they're good. Like Black people are doing well. Like why, you know, what's the the big deal? And it's really this problem of visibility and um, representation. And we've we've gotten to a point that, you know, we rely so much on representation. Well, oh, if we're we're, just a seat at the table and I'm like, no, 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 no. The table... Is not the table we want to even be sitting at. That ain't the table for us.
0: That's um, the table that's serving that Juneteenth ice cream, and
1: that's exactly right. <laughs> exactly, that's how you get these things. And people are like, "Oh my god," yeah. you know us. And I'm like, "No, this is par for the course." Like, if y'all are paying attention, this is par for the course. Like, representation is not going to save us. Representation is not enough. <laughs> um, <laughs> we need structural change. We need like things to happen. And I think that one of the things that I've been kind of meditating on recently has been. You know, at what is lost and gained from from that space of representation and visibility and like, you know, who are we appealing to? Who do we who must we appeal to yeah. um, to gain those to gain to, to 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 implement structural change that benefits the quality of life of black folks in this country and across the and across the globe? And I just I don't feel comfortable being like, oh, well, we need to make demands of these institutions that were not built for us in the first place. They were mm-hmm. built specifically to be violent toward us. Um, and to exclude us. And so I, I just, I'm really interested in the space between art history and Black study and what we can, what the two disciplines can learn from one another and thinking about self determination and cooperative economics. And I just, I'm trying to figure out what that looks like in the art space, in the art world. Yeah. I don't have an answer for it yet, but um, to, your, to your question, no, I don't. I don't think that <laughs> my perspective is. Um, represented in the mainstream. And I'm okay with that. I don't need it to be. I, I think that it's still a valid position and it's one that I continue and will continue to cultivate and just kind of, you know, find like-minded folks and, and try to figure out some stuff on the ground for us and hopefully do it in a much more um, veiled way, actually. Because, you know, once you once you start winning or making moves, people want they want to replicate it. They want to possess it. They want to colonize it. They want to discipline it for you. Um, Or even eradicate you. And so I just so it's a tricky it's a very tricky kind of it's a tightrope walking that (laughs) tightrope.
0: Yes, it's one of the things that comes to mind is uh, I I remember this joke uh, because I I like stand up comedy and I remember this joke from Patrice O'Neill and he was just talking about whenever there was a. anybody that tried to like galvanize black people, they got smoked. And he was just like, yeah, you know, I need some young soldier to do it. I'll be over here while you're getting shot. Cause that's kind of how it goes. <laughs> and you know, there are times where, um, literally, and I'm not kidding. I don't think I've ever said this on this podcast. I, I was in an Uber like two years ago and I was just like on my rant about just, this doesn't make sense. It's, it's almost like you know, shit that should not be is the way I'll put it. Right. And it and it was specifically about like local politics and the Uber drops I mean, you dropped the facts back there, bro. He's like, are you running? I was like, no. I just yeah. see these things. It's like, I, I don't like like I'm a fat guy, right? And I don't like running. I don't like <laughs> I don't like doing things that take time. I, I like to just be to relax. And mm. if you have my attention to you making me thinking m- making me think about things then now I have to really dive into it. I really have to spend that time and that energy and I can go to the research route or I can just go very first level. And it's like, you know, this doesn't make sense. So Mm -hmm. I'll just throw this out, um, in terms of like perspective, right. Where my background was in marketing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, consumer behavior and things of that nature. And I was like, we, these things that are catchy and these things that are cool to say, I was like, sure, you need a better PR person. You know, when someone says like, you know, defund the police for sake of argument, right? It's like, no, I think what you mean is, and I'm not saying like free branding, it's like literally they'll take money from the police and put it in other places. Because people just hear you're taking right. money from the police. Right. It's like, no, here's this chart that says civil rights in education but specifically in baltimore <laughs> is like the lowest line items on the budgets take some money from the police and put it in those areas maybe that'll exactly. fix some of these issues
1: right and exactly
0: with a city that's eh, almost 70% black that's baked in right but hey right. no one asked me you know that's that's how, kind of how i look at it so when you see in terms of pop culture when you see like copaganda and you see things that have been around for I I remember I was watching like Tubi. I don't know Mm -hmm. if you, that free network. And Mm -hmm. I was like, man, I remember Hunter. My dad used to watch this back in the day. And I was like, oh, yo, why (laughs) is every black dude on here? Jive dude. I was like,
1: right,
0: okay, I have to watch it with this kind of perspective. And I used to do a podcast called unofficially black. And I would, I had this segment called great moments in black exploitation. That was the only way Mm -hmm. I could let it go down. Mm -hmm. And you watch it and you're like, no, this has been this perpetual sneak dissing. And part of it is who's in, this, who's in the writer's room and what they're exactly. going for. But you still see it and it's more refined and it's more, in their opinion, more nuanced. And going back to, I think, the thing that you touched on so well, because I feel like I've gotten smarter in this episode, um, <laughs> is that we have this conversation about seated at the table and people throw that out there. Like, that's something I should be looking forward to.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: I'd rather just right. do it or myself. That, or that
1: Black writers are going to tell this, those stories that are authentic to us, like as if they're not contaminated by this other system or by the system that they have to um, submit to themselves. And so like, you know, and then, you know, these uproars over like, well, did so-and-so do this? Or I can't believe they would do that. Or like, look at this episode. How could a Black woman write this and all this stuff? And it's like, <sighs> they're under, we're all under the same constraints. We're all circumscribed by anti-Blackness. It doesn't, Like Mm -hmm. just you by virtue of you being like a black person in the room doesn't mean you're going to like one, get the pitch. You're not going to, you're going to have to make sacrifices because there's, I, for Uh instance, I'm like, based on my own experience, I am producing a feature-length um, experimental documentary that was just accepted into a very well-known um, independent media, yes, um, laboratory for workshopping um, from the rough cut to the fine cut stage. So we're, we're really at the end, we're in the kind of end of post-production, right? This is a predominantly white space. Mm-hmm. The film is about the intersection between gun violence and gentrification.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Told,
1: told through the eyes of a black mother, whose son was murdered, and these white people in this room told her that she needed to be more vulnerable on screen. I'm sorry. Did you watch the documentary? Mm-hmm. They doc- were like, well, "We just want to. <laughs> we want to see you break down." Uh, I'm gonna say that. I'm gonna say that again. We want to see you break down.
0: Well, you know, black women don't feel pain. So let's just, you know. They
1: were like, you're recreating the strong woman stereotype. If you, excuse me, what, first of all, what you know about it, first of all, and the structural conditions that have produced that, start, that stereotype, number one, own yeah. your shit, not mine. Two, how dare you demand uh-huh. that I perform being undone when I'm fucking on screen crying, talking about my son not being here anymore and me trying to recover his presence in all of these different ways, in these poetic ways. We're not reproducing details of his murder for obvious reasons. We're going against the true, true, true crime genre and the, how popular it is. You know, yeah. So much of the media space right now is true crime, reveals. We want to know the, de- the gritty details of how this person yeah. you know, met their end or whatever. And I'm just like, we don't need that for black life.
0: No, we we we, we've had we live it every day.
1: Right, we live it every day. So it's just it's that type of stuff and it's like you have to just when you get that feedback, you have a choice to make, mm. especially when the funders and the distributors are in the room and they're like, "Well, we we don't we want to see it this way." And you're like, "Well, I'm going to keep doing it this way." So that means that this deal can't happen because you're not letting me realize my own vision. So again, going back to the question of, self, of self-determination. Sometimes you got to say no to stuff that's not right for you.
0: Absolutely. One hundred percent. Um and I'll and I'll I'll leave on this, and this is actually the last bit before I get to rapid rapid the rapid questions. Uh so I, I I on occasion I go back and I like to look at like old stuff. I'll look at like Columbo, I'll look at um what is it? Um namely the the old kind of like sci-fi horror stuff. So like Twilight Zone for sake of our yes. right? and you look at Twilight Zone, you look at the original Star Trek and You'll, you'll see things that you're like, oh, this is a little more, hmm, this is kind of relevant now. It's a little bit more woke than I thought. And I was like, oh, you had to appease this. You wanted to maybe work this Black story in here. And exactly. it's like, yo, you, know, you got to have like six alien episodes for that one. And that's that's kind of the concession, I think. Right. And it's like, all right. And I, I look at current things and I feel like this could open up a whole can of worms and we're not going to go there, but we could have this conversation later. Um I, I just remember watching um, Lovecraft Country and it, it, it was like, you know, you know why you wrote this, right? This was something right. that was like a non X-Files thing. This didn't. I was like, all right, cool. We got a black person running it. I was like, fine. And, you know, I was like, there are things that I like, but then there were things that were kind of like overindulgent. It just inac- just in didn't fit. Right. And I was like, so this is representation. It's like like, right. this can be done in a better way that sticks right. to the own language you're creating. I don't need Cardi B in the 60s or whatever. I don't right. need it. <laughs> And, and the, I, I did a podcast series covering every episode. and I was like losing my mind because people were like, I just don't think you get it. I don't think you're black enough for this, Rob.
1: Wow. These are
0: things I would hear if I had the counter argument. I cannot. <laughs> but this has been wonderful. Now it's it's time for some rapid fire questions. Okay. got me all riled up, doctor. I know,
1: I'm like, ah!
0: <laughs> so, we want to try to answer these as quickly as possible.
1: Okay, first thought, best thought. <sighs> yes. Kind of, okay, got it. Uh,
0: crunchy or creamy? Crunchy. Okay, good, good on you. Only. <laughs> okay, Uh <laughs> What is your favorite place to visit? You've lived everywhere. Um, And what's one thing that you must do there? Like, let's say when I go to New Orleans, I got to have a beignet. I got to have one.
1: Right. I understand. Uh, Paris. And I have to have, I have to go to my favorite Ethiopian restaurant in the world called Gojo. Incidentally, they have a Gojo Ethiopian Ethiopian restaurant named Gojo in Philadelphia, in West Philly, where I live. And... um, Or where I used to live. And I, it was like, I think it's just a nostalgia thing. I'm like, oh, it's named the same. The food does not taste the same. It's not bad. It's just different. But yes. So Paris, Gojo, Ethiopian food. Yes.
0: I'm hearing you. Uh, What is something without fail that makes you laugh?
1: Oh, somebody falling—that's so bad. But it <laughs> <happen>.
0: <laughs> just because it makes you laugh now, damn <laughs>
1: me! I'm like, oh, and you witness a trip, like you witness a, mis- a mistake that doesn't hurt anybody, but you're like, oh shit, like oh, you thought you had it. I even do that myself. I'll trip on the sidewalk, and I'm like, girl, really? The sidewalk just came up and had you. What happened, girl? Yeah, it's it, it, it never fails. I'm always like, Bruh! I'm like, but wait, are you okay? Oh, that's why I laughed.
0: Sometimes when people throw words together, like when people curse in a in a weird way. It's like,
1: right, that's,
0: that's kind of funny. That's <laughs> the like that. And it might be because I'm, I'm in my 30s as well. It might be like, all right, I appreciate you. When you configured that many curse words right. in a span. Like you're, you're, you're going for word count, I guess. Uh, right, right,
1: right. <laughs> um, max out, max out. Yeah, so it's
0: like, look, I got four. I'm going to get that R rating. <laughs> uh, favorite dance movie? Oh, oh. Mm-hmm. Wow. I've Flash. added that.
1: Yeah, I'm like, Flashdance was the first thing that came to mind. But there are so many others. I just watched Last Dragon, which made me think of Breakin'. Also love Breakin'. So any basically, any any basically 80s dance movie, I'm definitely gonna ride for. I,
0: I have a hot take I'm gonna throw out to you because you mentioned Last Dragon. It came out the year I was born, so I have to speak on it. Yes. Uh I think that's the version of that kind of black Asian discourse, the way that they had the jive talking to Asian dudes. That's the version of it that people missed a mark on all the time.
1: Yes. Watching it now from this vantage point, I was like, wow. I was like, this is so problematic, but also as a, like, as an object, as a document of how people thought about black and Asian relations at that time and having the kind of script flip of like the Asian Mm-hmm. cohort being like oh we're jive talking we're performing these black stereotypes yeah. and then having the black character obviously bruce leroy yeah. um kind of performing this like but he wasn't even performing asianness like he wasn't yeah. like yeah like he wasn't like making noises and like you know doing yeah. weird things he was like i'm studying martial arts it's not the same thing so it was just it was such a fascinating like cultural moment i was like
0: wow yeah, and and if anyone was doing it, it with that was caping for the, the Asian thing. It's like, what are you the show's gonna All right then also
1: PS <laughs> how about shownuff looks just like Dion Cole.
0: You're right. Look dead ass. Can like, we, can we just cast on. this? Can we just cast this?
1: Straight on. So apparently, so when I was watching it with my friends, we googled whether or not Dion Cole knew that he looked <laughs> like shownuff and show showing up, he, he dressed up, <laughs> <or> <laughs> up at, for a Halloween or something one time, like in the last few years. I'm like, "Yes, Deon Cole, know thyself, okay." Oh, <laughs> that's great!
0: That's great. Uh, this this is the uh, I got I got two more. Um, I'm gonna save the good one for last. Uh, what is the first thing you do in the morning? And the last thing you do at night?
1: <sighs> first thing I do in the morning is uh, turn my alarm off, and then take deep breaths about what day is coming. And the last thing I've been trying, the last thing I've been trying recently to connect, reconnect with is because my schedule is so crazy right now, Rob. I'm like, oh my God, I'm juggling so many things, so many projects, so many deadlines, life changes. And I'm like, you know, when well, we're still in the middle of a pandemic. So I'm just like, Oosa, breathe it so i've been reconnecting with meditation and that's what yeah. i like to do before the last thing i do before, of my day and go, when i'm going to sleep and i like it to help to help me trail into sleep into
0: deep sleep that's that's really good i've uh i've tried to get get connected with that definitely doing my echo tr- um toll Echo control i always call them that control because i think it's funny uh yeah. i try to try to do that or i'll throw on um Alan Watts had this like 12 hour, like Alan Watts audiobook. I'm like, yes, give oh, me these yes. long winded lectures.
1: So when Deepak Chopra and Oprah were doing, they used to do these like joint meditations. It's a rhyme programs. for some reason. Mm-hmm. And exactly, they rhyme. They're basically the same. You just combine their names, Chopra. Um, <laughs> they do it for you, it's already there. Um, and so there's a particular meditation one about like enlarged, like not enlargement, but like expansion that's like really. That I've, it's a 21 day meditation that I've been, um, that I purchased, and I've been kind of getting back into that. And the manifestation and meditation go hand in hand, okay? You got it. When so it you. rains, it pours. I'm yeah. like, ooh, yes. I feel like I'm in the flow. My meditation is popping. So I'm like, you
0: <laughs> Now it's time to be petty. Okay. Because I'm, see, I, I'm a cusp, right? I'm, a, I'm a Capricorn Aquarius cusp, but on occasion, I live in that Capricorn pettiness lane.
1: Yes.
0: So I'm gonna ask this question. Which rumor would you like to start? <laughs>
1: uh-huh. Oh. <God. laughs>
0: People always mess this question up, but I think it's a fun question.
1: This is a very good question. Okay. Let me think. So I will say a rumor that I thought was going to happen and that ended up kind of happening in this in the media space was that Will and Jada were gonna get a divorce.
0: Well, oops, oops.
1: I was like this slap the incident that we talked about for weeks. Yes. I didn't. But other people.
0: Yeah. We're like, we both oh, my God. Black men did... Attack black men.
1: Right. Like, where did this come from? Where could da, 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 da? Will it was out of pocket. Da, da, da. And I was like, listen, I was like, this is indicative of trouble at home. I say, you see Jada sitting back here looking at it. I'm like, mm-hmm. I was like in three a week to three weeks a rumor is going to break that they're on the verge of divorce and lo and behold.
0: <laughs>
1: so maybe I did. Start that rumor.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this has been great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This, this is definitely the treat to wrap up my week. Um, I want to thank you for being on this podcast, um, bringing some class here. Thank,
1: uh, you. thank you so much for inviting me. This has been so fun.
0: Absolutely. Um, I want to invite and encourage you to tell the final folks where to check you out, your work, your musings, all of that good stuff.
1: Absolutely. Um, most of my things, most of the things that I've written and kind of curatorial projects, especially in the digital space, digital sphere, are on my, are hyperlinked on my website at www.tiffanyebarber.com. Um, Barbara, like a shop. I always say that people always want to mispronounce my name. Barbara? No, Barber. <laughs> barber like a shop um and then you can also find me on my I'm on the socials on instagram and twitter at the same handle at tiffany e barber all one word no spaces
0: but there you have it folks for the great doctor 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 tiffany e barber that's a barber not barbara okay barber. uh i'm rob lee saying that there's art culture in and around your neck of the woods you just gotta look for it